Morning, y'all. If you have a Bible, would you open up with me to Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. If you're new or you're visiting uh, or joining us online this morning, welcome. We're excited to have you. We're, we're in a series that we started last week, and we're going to kind of carry on throughout the duration of the summer. Um, we've titled this Guard Your Heart. And essentially, the, the hope or the, the big idea of this series comes from uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, one that we kind of unpacked last week, where there the writer of the Proverbs instructs, a, uh, as, as though it's the voice of a father to a teenage son, instructs that son to guard your heart with all diligence for from it springs all of life. Or as another translation said, above all else, guard your heart, for from your heart flows the rest of your life. And so we, we investigated that last week about how central the heart is to uh, not just that passage, but to all of the scriptures. The, the ministry of Jesus was, was marked or directed by Jesus pursuing the hearts of men and women. Uh, Jesus' own emotional disposition is often recorded in the Gospels where Jesus showed compassion uh, towards the poor and the marginalized, towards the afflicted, towards those demon-possessed. Jesus was oriented in a particular direction at an emotional level. That, that is, his heart broke for people. He, he wept over the death of Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. And so we, we just talked about last week how often it is in the church especially that we don't pay attention to the heart. In fact, we've sort of co-opted perhaps a modern view of the human species where we think that we are merely brains and bodies, that we have actions or wills and we have our way of thinking when, in fact, the scripture would challenge that and say, no, the, the heart is where all things flow from. And so we talked about that last week, and today I want to kind of pick up on that theme as we explore once again, what, what does it mean for the people of God to be a people who, who are motivated by what's happening in the heart? How do we guard our heart? How do we bring our heart into the conversation, especially in light of all that life would throw at us? If, if the heart directs us into life, then all the seasons of life matter as well. And that's where we pick up here in chapter 3 of the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my perhaps favorite books in the Bible, the wisdom of uh, the, the great King Solomon dispensing at the end of his life the truths that he has discovered as he signs off as a, as a leader and as a, a man of, of faith at the end of his life and says, this is what I've learned. This is the way I, I, I view things through the eyes of the preacher or the instructor. And we come here to chapter 3 where a poem opens up the beginning of this chapter, and then he unpacks it in the latter half. Uh, we read in, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to, to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them 
than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And that also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. I don't normally title sermons. It's just um, it kind of doesn't matter. It's not like you're going to remember it or I'm going to remember the title anyway. But if I were to title one for today, it would be a tale of two poems. Uh, I'm not a poetry guy, or at least I, I don't guess I don't read poetry in a proper sense. I love uh, old country music and 90s hip-hop, both of which I think are poetry, but that's a debate for another day. But I don't really get into poems, but in, in reading the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you look at this and you see that it opens up with what is very clearly a, a poem. It's got a, a cadence and, and a rhythm. Uh, I think people who read ancient Hebrew really well will tell you there's a cadence in the ancient language, that the way the, way the stanzas are formed, like this is without a shadow of a doubt a poem. And so I thought it captures a particular sentiment or a particular heart. It captures a certain idea that the author then, Solomon, goes on to unpack. But I begin to think, is there any poem perhaps that is prevalent or popular in our day and age, as much as poetry can be, that would stand in contrast to this one? And I stumbled upon one you've probably heard before. It's quite famous. It was written in the 1800s by William Ernest Henley called Invictus. The poem that's sort of been written and inscribed in any heroic venture over the past couple of hundred years. And I picked this poem particularly as one to contrast what, what uh, Ecclesiastes tells us here in chapter 3, because I do believe that it is a completely different way of viewing the world. The way that this particular poem captures the human spirit or, or the human will, uh, as I said, movies have been written about this. Uh, books have been written on this. Pretty much any great leader in the past couple hundred years at some point in time has quoted from the poem Invictus. And so in many ways, it sort of captures the, the heart or the ideology behind Western civilization, between heroic individualism. And I believe this morning it sheds a light on the difference between that and what God has in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 through the wisdom of Solomon. So uh, indulge me if you will. Let me read you a poem this morning. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond the pale of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, those last few lines are the ones that's probably been the most popularized. And again, I believe that captures in many ways the spirit, the, the ideology, the heart of must, much of Western thought, much of the way our world has been shaped the past few hundred years, this heroic individual who, against all the odds, stands defiant. My head is bloodied but, but unbowed. The man can't take me down, as 90s hip-hop may say. I, I will stand against the charges, against the tides. I will be defiant in the face of any and everything. And at the end, I, I alone, 
and the master of my fate. I and I alone and the captain of my soul. Now, I call this the tale of two poems because you ha- if you can wrap your mind around that, and you can see how leaders like Winston Churchill and Nelson Mandela, great men as they were, quoted poems like this to lead large groups of people into to valiant charges and efforts. But you can also see how crazy sadists and psychopaths have quoted the same passage and said, this is the reason why I am right and everyone else around me is defiant and wrong. What does that have to say, or how does that matter about the heart in light of what Solomon says here, as the wisest man, as best we can tell, in his day and age, as he writes a very different poem? It may not be a poem that on the surface you say sounds much different than Invictus, but when you dig in a little bit beneath the surface, you see some things. You begin to see that God did not set up human beings to be the master of their faith, the captain of their own soul. In fact, human beings are at God's whim. And there are seasons to life, seasons which are going to come and go, seasons which Solomon says exist, and the better, the, the better equipped we will be to face those seasons if we can understand that God has placed eternity in our heart so that we don't know what he's up to. We are very much not the captain of our faith. We are very much not, not the master of our own souls. And so when it comes to the matters of the heart, the reason that I want to say this morning that this is so important for us is that we live in an age where uh, with technological advancements in both just gadgetry and in healthcare, when we look at the way that life has taken shape over the past 50, 60, 70 years, we can begin to believe the lie that we are somehow running the machine. That somehow that there's a, a, enough uh, uh, of the stuff of, of material and, 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 and creation and nature that if we can just get our arms around things, somehow we can direct the seasons. And if we're not careful, the toll that takes on our very souls will overwhelm us. It's why I think as I review over the past couple of years what's happened in our country and in the wake of a pandemic, as everyone collectively sort of lost their minds for a minute, what was behind all of that? Mostly, I think for a lot of us, it was an acknowledgement that things that we can't even see can control all of life in but an instant. And we realize how quickly it can all fall apart, that we are not the master, we are not the captain, and we don't know how to live or exist in a world where that is the case. So what I want to do this morning is just take the wisdom that Solomon gives us here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, specifically in this poem and in his unpacking of that poem, and see if we can direct it towards our hearts, such that our hearts would be more oriented or more reoriented towards God's truth of the world, how it works, and how we can maintain some semblance of emotional and spiritual health in a chaotic world that we have no control over. Uh, This morning, I want to talk a little bit about that. We talked about it last week, how emotional and spiritual health are directly tied together. Or as I read from the quote from Pete Scazzaro, one cannot be spiritually healthy and remain emotionally unhealthy, that those two things are sort of wrapped up together, our emotional maturity and our spiritual maturity. If we are these highly temperamental, highly reactive, uh, easily triggered individuals that anytime something we don't like comes into our worlds, we kind of fall apart, that says something. About our, about our spiritual state and our disposition and our heart before the Lord. So how do we take these truths that Solomon has been given to us, apply them to the heart such that our hearts are guarded? Well, the first thing I would contend with this morning is that in order to be a people whose hearts are properly situated, we have to learn to accept the season that we're in. We must learn to accept the season that we're in. If you go back and just kind of peruse those first eight verses, you see the rhythm and the cadence where Solomon says, Every, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. 
And then you get these contrasting things like life and death and planting and plucking up what is planted and mourning and dancing and, and healing and, and tearing apart. Over and over and over again, Solomon pitches the world as though there's a world of contrast. It has these variable seasons within it. And these things are coming, he says. And he says, I, I, I looked at this and I asked the, the, the proverbial question that every human being who's ever wandered this planet has asked. What then is the point? In verse 9, what, what is the point of, of life if we have these seasons? And then he begins to answer that. There's still a point there. Why should we continue to toil? Because God will make everything beautiful in its time. At some point into the future, Solomon says, the seasons will cease. And the beauty of what God was up to in the midst of all of those seasons will become clear to us all. So now we just exist in a season where we accept these particular seasons that we find ourselves in. Now, what does that have to do with the heart? Well, if we're, if we're unwilling, if we are the, 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 the invictus type, if we, if we look at the, the gate and the punishments that come and we say, my head is bloodied but unbowed, I am the captain of my fate, I am the master of my soul, I'm the, I will not go down in this season, then perhaps, perhaps we're in for a rough ride. Now, I want to I give a little bit of pushback here because I think someone hears me say, accept the seasons, and you immediately think, oh, you're just telling me to resign to whatever's happening in my life, to give up and to give in. And I would say accepting the season is not resignation. It's not resignation. It's not just saying, okay, it's all death. Everything is futile. Everything is pointless. No, Solomon explains how God is using whatever season you find yourself in to do something in you, something that you may not even or probably won't figure out in this lifetime. I quote it quite regularly here. One of my favorite theologians says, at any given moment, God's up to about 10 billion things, and you may be aware of three of them. And that's what accepting the seasons means. It means I'm not sovereign. I'm not in control. It's not resignation, though. Wisdom pushes back against whatever you're up against and says there are seasons, but not everything is death. There are times of dancing. There are times of singing. There are times of feasting. But yes, there are times of fasting. Yes, there are times of mourning. And whatever I find myself in, the big question that pervades all of it is, what is God up to? How is he maturing me through this? What about my emotional state or disposition, my own emotional health, the way that I see the world? What is he wanting to, to, to sanctify in this? What rough edges is he chipping away at? How is he refining me through the process of whatever season I may find myself in? Accepting the season is not reg- resignation. Accepting the season means you're ceasing resistance against them. You are ceasing to resist whatever God may be up to at this moment in your life. Our emotional and spiritual health comes primarily through those who can accept that God is up to something even in the midst of the hard stuff. It's the way we're refined. It's the way we grow. It's the way we mature. Even in the midst of the right side of the poem, all of those difficulties that emerge, we know that we're not going to resist God in this. We're going to take whatever's coming our way and let our perception be shaped by the season in such a way as though it drives us to our knees in prayer and to faith in our Lord, believing that he is, in fact, up to something. He is, in fact, doing something in me and through me. When I think about accepting the seasons, I think about this time of year. This is the, if, if you guys are, are folks who, you know, work in the garden, this is, this is your moment, right? Gardeners in the room, you're, ha- you're in the middle of your fun season, right? And my dad uh, had the greenest thumb, like he, he could grow anything pretty much anywhere. And I often, I would try to get him to explain it to me because I did not, that skips a generation apparently, I can kill anything except weeds. I'm good at those. But 
Anything else, I can, I can kill it. And so I would ask my dad questions all the time about like, hey, should I do this with my tomatoes? What about if you're planting squash? And he would say things that just didn't, it was that sort of hillbilly country wisdom. You're like, boy, don't plant yet. The last frost ain't happened. How do you know that? I just know. I'm like, ah, you can't, you're not a weatherman, but he would know. He's like, now is not the season. And he had this in-depth perception about what was happening so that whenever he would plant something, it would grow. Once again, I, I bought a tomato plant this year. And I didn't buy, like, the little one, the, the, the tiny ones that you can get, like, the cheap. I went and got the big one, the Costco one that already had tomatoes on it. I was like, surely I can't mess this up. And I think from the time I bought the plant until now, the, the tomatoes are the same size. The plant is on its way to death. I've done everything that I know to do, and I'm killing it still somehow. I'm not very good at whatever season I find myself in. Now, I think that there's something about that with the way it applies to what Solomon is teaching us here, though, in Ecclesiastes 3, that there are these seasons. And if you are a planter or a grower, then you know that you've got to do the hard work of tilling and weeding in the spring. And you, that's when you plant the seed, and that's when you tend to the crop. In the summer, that's whenever you're, you're seeing the growth and the, and the blossoms and the maturity and everything's bearing fruit in its season. And in fall, you harvest. But if you don't do those first three things, you're not going to make it through the winter. That you've come to accept that there is a season where nothing grows. There is a season where it gets cold and dark. There's a season that you've got to pass through in order to get back to the other season and see growth and, and, and flourishing once again. Those who can accept the seasons grow and mature and become the people that God has made them to be in due season in the way that he's leading them to become. Well, one of my favorite passages about this takes place just a few chapters later, whenever Solomon unpacks this idea even further. You get to chapter 7, and he's talking specifically about life and death there, and how it all applies to the, to the heart, and how it applies to wisdom, and how it applies to our spiritual and emotional maturity. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, he writes, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. What's he saying? Solomon says, look, in order for you to know what happiness is, in order for you to know what joy looks like, you've got to go through dark seasons. And he says that there are some things that you can learn. The wise, he says, have taken it to heart. That there are some things they can learn at a funeral that they would never learn at a party. And they know that this season is inevitable because at the end of the day, all mankind is going to go through this season. So he says the living lay it to heart. That our hearts are situated on understanding that we all have a limited amount of, limited amount of days. When my doctor friend says, we're all terminal, we just haven't gotten the report yet. Death rate's one per person. We're all going to make it. And so we've considered that, he says, and then we allow that truth to lead the way that we interact with the world. You say, well, that sounds kind of morbid and morose. Solomon says, no, it's wisdom. It's what sets you up in whatever season you find yourself in to either be able to make it or to be able to celebrate whenever it's time to celebrate, to dance when it's time to dance, to feast when it's time to feast. How do you know that? You've accepted the seasons. You're not resigned to them, but you've stopped resisting them. And ultimately, for that to happen, there's, there's something that's got to take place in us. We've got, to, we've got to ask some hard questions. Like even today, what season are you in? If you just take the metaphor of the seasons we face in this world, is this summer for you? Is stuff growing and flourishing? If so, praise God. 
Is this fall? Is this the harvest season? Is this the season where, man, your kids and your grandkids are together and you're getting these moments of joy with them and being able to experience the love and grace of God in those times? Is this a season where your marriage may be doing well, where you're financially doing well? Enjoy that. Maybe you're in the winter, though. And maybe instead of resisting the winter, you do what you do in the winter. You hunker down. You learn from it. You experience it, and you let it in some ways break the things in you that need to be broken so that whatever may come next, this life or the next, you know that God is with you in the midst of it. One of the most emotionally mature friends that I have, one of these guys that I look at and I say, man, he is, he's following Jesus, and it's evident in the way he interacts and intersects with people. All of those fruits of the Spirit we talked about last week, one of these guys that just is gentle and he's kind, and he's patient. He's not harsh and biting and combative and contentious and critical of everything. No, the Lord has done this work on his heart such that, like Jesus, he's just a compassionate guy. I was talking to him a couple weeks ago. He was getting ready to go on a break from his job, a little bit of a sabbatical. And I said, what are you going to do? And he said, man, I'm going to go see a counselor. I'm like, dude, if you need to see a counselor, I got to see a counselor. (laughs) And I said, well, what's going on? I said, you know, I keep up with you quite regularly. What's, What's happening? And he's like, you know, I've just... It's been a hard season in some ways, and there's some things that I used to cry about that I don't cry about anymore. And there are some things that used to affect me that I feel like maybe I've just learned how to turn that off and numb out. He's like, I just want to talk to someone about that. I feel less human right now. That's what accepting the season looks like. There's some things i got to work through. I don't want to be this guy that's just checked out, that's just going through the motions at a, motions at a heart level where, where I, I can't handle my emotions, so I shut them down. I want to be like Jesus who can see something that's utterly sad and broken and weep. And when I do get angry, I want it to be a righteous anger for the things of God, not just because someone's getting in my way and messing up my plans. I, I want to be the sort of holy individual who has some mastery over this aspect of their heart. That's what it means to accept the seasons. And in order to do that, Solomon tells us here, we've got to trust God's control of things. We've got to trust God's control of things, not ours, his. Look back at verse 9. So Solomon recites this poem, and it doesn't end with, I'm the, I keep messing it up, I think. I'm the, the captain of faith. I'm the master of myself. Flip it. I don't care. Whichever way. You get the idea. It doesn't end like that. It ends with, at the end of the poem, he asks a question, which is what I love about the wisdom of the scriptures. He's like, okay, I just said a poem. What do we do with that? Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? What does this all mean? What is this all worth? What benefit is it then to go to work on Monday if there's a season for everything and we're just going to die in the end? Well, he says, I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. As one translation says, I've seen the burden that God has laid upon us. And there's a point to it. Here it is. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Here's my contention based on that odd and somewhat obscure statement. Your spiritual and emotional health are inextricably tied to faith. In other words, it is impossible to grow spiritually and emotionally as it pertains to your walk with God without faith. So where do you get that from that verse? Look back at it. It's a super interesting answer to his rhetorical question. What what does it all mean? What is it all worth? Solomon says, well, in faith, here's what I believe. I believe that in time, God's going to make everything beautiful. And I also believe that eternity exists within me. So we all have this experience of life where when the good days are the good days and we finally figure out, oh, these are the good days, we want it to never end. But we know it will end. 
It's what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. We live in spatial time. And so we go, how do I hold on to this forever? Or we stop and go, that was amazing. Thank God for it. And then see what's coming next. And that second way of doing it is an act of faith. We believe that God will make everything beautiful in its time. We believe by faith that God has put eternity in our hearts. We believe that God is up to something. That's all faith. And the only way that you and I grow in our spiritual and emotional health is by faith. We have to trust that God will make everything beautiful in its time, especially in winter, especially in seasons where things are particularly broken and particularly challenging, especially in seasons where we feel overwhelmed or anxious. It's in those seasons that we, by faith, have to believe God to be true to his word. As Paul would say in the book of Romans, it's all going to work for good to those who love God and trust him. In the end, we win. I don't know what your view of revelation is. I kind of don't care. You don't, shouldn't care about mine too much. The end is this. We win. Jesus comes back. There's a feast. To the extent that we believe that, it shows up in our heart and soul now. It shows up in the way that we see things. But in order for us to get there, we've got to resign our perceived vision of ourselves as the God of the universe. One of my favorite quotes about this comes from M. Scott Peck in his famous book, The Road Less Traveled. He says, As soon as we believe that it is possible for a man to become God, we can never really rest for long. Never say, okay, my job is done. We must constantly push ourselves to greater and greater wisdom, greater and greater effectiveness. By this belief, we will have trapped ourselves, at least until death, on an effortful treadmill of self-improvement and spiritual growth. God's responsibility must be our own. Now, I don't want to blow past that quote too quickly because for some of y'all, that's what life feels like. And you're asking the question that Solomon asked, what's what's this all about then? Life is just an effortful effortful treadmill of spiritual development where I've got to just stay, keep going, keep plugging along. Maybe you've assumed your role is that of God's. Maybe you're trying to play the role of the sovereign. If you can't trust God by faith, you can't trust that God's going to make everything beautiful in its time, you're going to attempt to take God's job and engineer beauty by your own power, might, or will. You can't trust God to do what God says he's going to do in his time. Your spiritual and emotional health are inextricably tied to your faith, and faith will always be stunted by pride or fostered by humility. That's the position that Solomon assumes here. You're either going to have your faith stunted because you see all, know all, can do all, be everywhere for all, or you're going to accept that you are but a human being with ultimately tons of limitations, most of which you can't even perceive of, and then allow God to do something in your life. When you, when you resist the seasons, it's almost always due to pride. When you look at whatever you're facing, you say, my life shouldn't be going this way. I'm too smart. I'm too skilled, I'm too educated, I'm too experienced. My outcome should be different. I've played my part, I've done my job, I've fulfilled my role. I shouldn't be going through this. That's the voice of someone who aspires to be omniscient or sovereign speaking. When we assume a posture of critique or resentment or apathy, you can always bet that pride is behind all of that. I shouldn't be going through this. Says who? And I believe that what Solomon is offering to us here is freedom. It's freedom from that treadmill, freedom from that trap of trying to assume the position that only God can occupy. In Jeffrey Meyer's brilliant commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes titled The Table in the Mist, he talks about this. He says, the knowledge of God's comprehensive sovereign control should be a release. The burden of being a God is not one that a human creature was meant to shoulder. 
Along with God-like sovereignty comes the crushing responsibility for your entire life and the outcome of your life. Ecclesiastes is liberating. It tells you that you need not feel guilty for something you cannot control. All times and seasons are in God's hands. Now, if perhaps you believe that somehow you are the, the master of your fate and the captain of your soul, you'll never get off that treadmill. You'll never be able to accept this. But if you can hand sovereignty back over to God, to whom it ultimately belongs anyway, perhaps you can breathe a little bit. Your heart can, can, can catch up. You can begin to process and grow and develop and mature in the way that God intended. And then beyond that, you can actually receive God's, goods, God's good gifts to you. The things that he has given you because he's good and gracious and kind and loving. You can receive those with open hands. Only when you realize they're gifts, not entitlements. They're, they're, they're packages that he's passed on with bows and ribbons on them because he wants you to enjoy them. They're not something that you deserve because you earn, because you're good enough, smart enough, and you work harder than everyone else. They're God's gifts to you, and you can receive those things. Look at how Solomon says it. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, you know what that is? It's a command to be joyful on the basis of faith. You realize that this morning. That any time we, we grasp or take hold of the joy that God has on offer for us, the joy that he wants us to experience or to know or to treasure, it's always by faith. It's this belief that, okay, I have this moment. I, ha I am in this season. The tomatoes didn't die. They're growing. I cut into them. There's not worms or something funky in the inside of them. And I get to eat that acidic, beautifully grown tomato on sourdough bread with lettuce and bacon. Can you all come with me in this moment? And it runs where the mayonnaise and the tomato juice is mixed together. Some of y'all don't like tomatoes. You think this is gross. And I'm sorry. That's bad for you. But in that moment, Solomon says, take joy. By faith, believe there is a God who somewhere got someone to plant a seed and put it in a pot that I couldn't even mess up. And it brought forth this fruit. And there was a dude somewhere that raised a pig, smoked it, salted it, put it in a package. And there was someone else who knows how to bake really good sourdough, who had a good starter and made that work. And when I put all those things together, along with Duke's mayonnaise, not Hellman's, <laughs> glory. <laughs> and this is God's gift. It's his, it's his graciousness. It's his kindness to me. But I can only lay hold of that joy if it's by faith. If I don't believe, man, look at how good I am growing tomatoes. Look at how good I am at picking out the bacon you know, look at how good I... No, that, 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 that leaves it not as a gift, but as an entitlement. R.C. Sproul had a, a great article on this once upon a time where he said, right now counts forever. Like, learn to live in the moment. Learn to experience joy in the moment. He says, what I do right now, how I receive God's gifts, and how I find satisfaction in the times that God has given me are the most important things in life. Life will be unbearable. A bewildering confusion of this and that, an impossible burden, unless we confess that what we have is a gift from God, whether we comprehend it or not. If we are wise, we will abandon all hope of comprehension and rest in God's good gifts to us. We will give up the illusion of gaining leverage with our toil and enjoy it as God's grace. And then Solomon says that, that then leads to faith that leads to works. I, I, I tell them, this is nothing better for you than to experience joy and to do good as long as you live. 
In other words, as you see how God is at work in whatever season you're facing, God then leads you to work that out in faith. Your faith leads to action. Your faith leads to good outcomes. Your faith leads to doing the next right thing, whatever that may be. And that's an act of receiving God's gifts. And even this morning, for me to get up and preach, I believe God has gifted me in these ways. I think he's prepared me with this message. I think he opened up his word by his spirit to teach me these things. And it is a pleasure then to be able to do the good thing that God has called you to do. There's joy in that. And then lastly, that's the last point I want to leave you with. Solomon tells people to have faith-based pleasure. Now, if you grew up in maybe like super rigid fundamentalist circles of some sort, that sounds like an oxymoron to you. Because faith and pleasure, pleasure is the realm of the devil, faith is the realm of God. How can those two things go together? But look at what Solomon says. He says, everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. We don't know what God is up to. We got a season in front of us. It may be a good season or a bad season. We don't know. But in these moments when we have these fleeting experiences whereby God is with us, we take pleasure in these things. We learn to enjoy them. We learn to, if there is a time to dance, you dance. If there is a time to celebrate, you celebrate. If there's a time to mourn, you should mourn. If there's a time for grief, you should be grieving. But even in those moments, we know that God is up to something, and we can find pleasure in the midst of it. But for some of y'all this morning, and I'll end with this, that sounds impossible. And I get it. I mean, I look around the room, I know stories. I know what some of y'all are wrestling with. Uh, I'm overwhelmed even considering how to pray for it in some of your seasons that you're in. I get that. But you're not alone. And, and even in those moments when it feels overwhelming, when the anxiety and the fear and frustration or whatever you may be experiencing or feeling starts creeping up, Jesus is with you in that. And I would even contend Jesus has on offer for you some maybe small, maybe minute minute of pleasure in the midst of it. Where did I get that idea? Well, we're going to take communion in just a minute. And I want you to consider something maybe perhaps you haven't considered when taking communion before. When Jesus sat down with his disciples, he was fully aware of what was coming next, the cross. He was fully aware that they were all going to run away scared because of the threat of punishment that would come upon them. And yet, they had a meal. Think about from like that rigid sort of fundamentalist stance, like how frivolous, how, Jesus, how wasteful are you? You know you're about to die. Why would you even do this thing? There's a moment of pleasure. And making a new covenant that is not made like the old covenant. The covenant's made by blood. And as he poured the wine and broke the bread, he said, I'm doing this for you. You do this in remembrance of me. In Zach Swine's commentary on this passage in his uh, uh, book on Ecclesiastes, he writes it like this. He said, Jesus experiences our seasons and times. His sympathy with us abounds. If you have some type of addiction, if you've been through some type of trauma, if you've had some type of celebration, you want people to resonate with you. We long for empathy, and it's often in short supply. And the whole picture given in the Bible is that God has entered life under the sun, and and Jesus has taken it all in. So when you're sad and sitting in your living room, the message for you is that Jesus knew the times. He too cried as you cry. He too has been abandoned the way you have been abandoned. He too has overcome the way many of you have overcome. He too has died as we all will. But in him... The sting of death has died. So God, would that be true in our souls this morning? 
Father, would we stop resisting the season that we find ourselves in and instead see you in the midst of it? The God who can calm the storm, the God who can conquer death itself, the God who rules and reigns over all of creation and is coming again for us. Lord, tune our hearts to, re- to receive your grace this morning as we gather around your table as your children. Scared and dismayed, anxious and overwhelmed as we may be, you look us in the eye and remind us again, this is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. So that even in these fleeting moments of chaos, we can experience some, some tangible pleasure. Let us do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.